Psalm 91 is very close to my favorite psalms. When I was but a young man and struggling with the concept of salvation, I read Psalm 91 where it says, Since He loves me, I will rescue Him. And I saw in that moment by God's Holy Spirit, salvation was not of works, but of God's love. And so we want to consider these things in Ruth chapter 3, which is on page 264 of your pew Bible, and we'll give our attention to the whole of the chapter under the heading of Seeking Union with the Redeemer. Seeking Union with the Redeemer. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went down to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered and said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a Redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer." but yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If He will redeem you, good. Let Him do it. But if He is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at His feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And He said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back to empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, my most dear friends, there may be some of you here this morning who enjoy the theater. Uh, My aunt from Canada is here and she loves the theater. And in some ways, each chapter of Ruth is like a play. And at the end of scene two, if you will, we see two women who are excited about the possibility 
of marriage. Ruth has just met Boaz. He has showered her with favor and protection. And and Naomi says to Ruth, He is a redeemer. That is, He is one of the designated men of the clan who is chosen to buy back property, to buy back family members from poverty so that the clan of Elimelech would not die. And even as we discussed in the first two chapters, he may even be called on to marry. In that last scene, Boaz is presented to the audience as available, a potential redeemer, a man of great mercy and justice, and Ruth is also available. And Ruth is in need of redemption, a woman of honor. To the reader, to the audience, it's a match made in heaven. It's a perfect opportunity. But as the curtains come down, so to speak, in scene two, and then the curtains come up in scene three, we see that in verse two, it's getting towards the end of the barley harvest. You remember that when Ruth and Naomi first came to Bethlehem, it was at the beginning of the barley harvest. We have some farmers in our congregation. We know that harvesting is hard work, especially when it's done by hand. and Done by young men and young women. What this means, dear congregation, is that from the time Ruth met Boaz to the beginning of scene 3, It's been roughly six to eight weeks since their first encounter. You see, as the curtains are coming up, what should happen next? Modern romance says Boaz is supposed to pursue Ruth, right? He needs to ask her out. He needs to show up on her doorstep with flowers and win her heart. The reader is supposed to be asking at the beginning of chapter 3, hey Boaz, what gives? And what further complicates the relationship is that Ruth, her options are limited. Remember that this is a patriarchal society. There was no dating app for Moabite singles in Bethlehem. As one commentator says, there's no Bethlehem Bachelor TV show. The point is is that it's hard for an eligible woman who's in need of a husband to approach a man, much less a Moabite foreigner. But one of the themes that sort of runs through this book is that Ruth is in need of rest or refuge. You see those two terms used synonymously. If you flip back to chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi says to Ruth and Orpah that their goal should be to find rest in the house of a husband. Flip to chapter 2, verse 12, where it says they need refuge under the wings of another. Dear congregation, the implication should be clear to us that to not have a husband in this ancient time, would be to not have rest. To not have refuge. 
And so if we want to understand the sense of Ruth chapter 3, we need to hear a clock ticking in the background. They have shown up to Bethlehem looking for rest. And one week passes. Two weeks passes. A month passes. Two months pass. Tick, tick, tick. They are poor, destitute widows looking for rest. And so we see in our time together this morning that these two women hatch a scheme, a plan, to remind the Redeemer of His obligation to redeem. And I want you to see that in our time together this morning. Our theme is seeking a commitment of rest or refuge in the Redeemer. Seeking a commitment of rest or refuge in the Redeemer. I want you to notice this in three movements here. We see this in a dangerous plan, our first point. Secondly, we see a midnight proposal. And then third, a promise of provision. A dangerous plan, a midnight proposal, and a promise of provision. And so we want to look at these first five verses of scene three and notice this dangerous plan. So Naomi, she thinks up a plan of how to remind the Redeemer that he is obligated to redeem members of Elimelech's clan. Now we need to just get this out of the way this morning. I think that Naomi's plan for Ruth is morally questionable at best. I'm not trying to defend Naomi this morning. What that means then, congregation, is that this plan is not normative. If I come to, or if you come to the office and for marriage counseling, this is how you proposed, there's going to be problems. Young ladies, please do not do this. This is a recording of history of what took place. And as Naomi is looking at Ruth's life, she sees a problem. She says, the problem is you're single. Look at verse 1. She says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek, again you see that word, rest for you. Living with Naomi is not the end goal here. Now I don't want to spend too much time on this subject because it's been addressed in both chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and it will be addressed in chapter 4 as well. But she's been living in Bethlehem for two months She's a Moabite foreigner, an outsider. She needs a husband. But the problem is, is that not only is she single, but she's a Moabite single. By way of reminder, we know that the Jews did not look very fondly upon the Moabites, did they? The Moabites came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters after they were saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Moabite women were known to lead Israelite men into sexual immorality and adultery. Now young children who are here this morning, don't ask me what this means. Go home and ask your parents. It's better that it comes from them than it comes from me. But they were known to be a temptation. They were known to be a problem in a sense to Israelite men. So the question really becomes, who would want to be the husband of her? 
to marry a Moabite could possibly make the husband a social outcast. And at the least, it would be socially awkward. It's a risk, in another word. So the question becomes, who is willing to undertake not just the marriage of a beautiful young woman, but take the risk of marrying a Moabite woman? And so Naomi boldly says, look at her plan, the answer is Boaz. He's a man of character. He's already said that he is willing to care for the women. She's coming to the same conclusion that the audience is coming to. That Boaz is the one. So she hatches a plan. You see that in those verses 3-5, through don't we? She says to Ruth that she needs to wash herself in verse 3 to anoint herself. This would have been a a symbol of luxury, a symbol of abundance. Of course, we're reminded of the psalmist's words, right? In Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil. A sign of abundance and luxury. Jesus, remember when uh, the woman anointed Him with that alabaster flask. And Judas said, you know, why didn't we sell that for the poor? Because it was worth something. It was luxurious and it represented abundant wealth. Naomi is saying, anoint yourself for Him. She used to put on fresh clothes, verse 3, that is to take off the garments of mourning and to put on a garment that might suggest that she is through her period of mourning and available for marriage. She used to visit him at the threshing floor, the end of the harvest. Often the owners of the fields would sleep with the collection of grains to keep it from thieves. She is to observe where he lies down, verse 4. She is to uncover Boaz's feet, lie down close to him. And the important note here in this plan, please do not miss this, Ruth is not to speak. She is only to listen and to do whatever Boaz tells her to do. Verse 4. So these instructions are quite extensive. But allow us to again draw our attention to chapter 1, verse 9. Where it says, May the Lord grant that you find rest. Congregation, who is the one who gives rest? The Lord. But as you look through this chapter, chapter 3, which is about putting rest into action, seeking it, trying to find rest, Naomi here, in her plan, doesn't mention the Lord one single time. We begin to see the problem here with the plan. Naomi, in a sense, is usurping She is going around. The Lord is waiting too long. He doesn't see our need. He doesn't know our need. So we're going to do something ourselves. And this is an extremely dangerous plan. As I mentioned, Moabite women were known for their seduction of Israelite men. And the threshing floor was actually a place of seduction. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Hosea chapter 9, verse 1 where the Lord explicitly mentions through the prophet that the threshing floor was a place of seduction. 
The Lord says in Hosea 9, Exalt not like the peoples. You have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute wages on all the threshing floors. It was a known place of the seduction of Israelite men. Not only this, we be reminded that the book of Judges, or sorry, the book of Ruth, excuse me, is written in the same time period of the Judges. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Both Boaz and Naomi have already urged Ruth on at least one occasion to be careful with where she goes in Israel, lest she be assaulted. This is physically dangerous to go out in the night by yourself dressed to the nines. If Ruth is seen, she will be interpreted as a prostitute. Those old Moabite women who've always been our temptation on the threshing floors and she'll be in big trouble if not her life at risk. If Boaz interprets her as a prostitute, she, and not only her, but also Naomi as sort of prostituting her wife or her daughter out, will be in big trouble. Now, not the least of which could Ruth also be physically harmed on the way to the threshing floor, or if she uncovers the feet of the wrong man, be sexually assaulted or even raped. And it's not hard to think in a lawless time what a man might do with a young woman in the middle of the night. And what makes this passage as challenging as it is, is sometimes we want to defend Naomi. Other times we want to villainize Naomi. But the fact of the matter is, we just don't know what Naomi's intentions are. It's not clear. If it is the case that she wanted her Boaz to be seduced by Ruth and then therefore him to marry her, she has a good goal, but she's going about it in the wrong way. But it's also equally plausible to say that Naomi is just sending there Ruth there to propose, to remind him of his duty as their Redeemer. Whatever the case may be, its ambiguity heightens the tension here. It heightens the suspense. Ruth is willing to act, she says in, I believe it's verse 5. And she says, all that you say, I will do. Congregation, doesn't this remind us of something in and of ourselves as well? That we can also, if it is true, I should say, but we can also have good goals, but go about achieving those goals with bad means. Sometimes we can be so focused on our goals, so desirous of a good thing, that we forget that God is the one who is the giver of all good gifts. And going about them in the wrong way only brings pain and suffering upon ourselves, doesn't it? By God's grace, Ruth and Naomi's plan worked. She went to a mighty man of valor, a worthy woman, and a mighty man of valor, proposing marriage. But it doesn't mean that that was necessarily going to be the case. And it doesn't mean that it's normative for us as well. We need to be people who go about achieving our goals in God-honoring and God-glorifying ways, right? 
We need, to be, we need to be very weary of a good goal with bad means. Now, we've already spoken much about the questionable nature of this proposal, but by word of application here this morning, Naomi could have been disinterested in Ruth's life as well. Ruth was actually making a decent income just from gleaning from Boaz's fields. Naomi, theoretically, could have just sat back and lived out her twilight years, lived out her retirement years, just pilfering off of Ruth. Ruth collecting these things, and then feeding her, taking care of her. She is also taking a risk here, isn't she? In Leviticus 19, verse 29, it says, Do not defile your daughter by making her a prostitute. You see, if Boaz interprets Ruth's presence in the wrong ways, he could have cut Ruth off from the grain. Don't glean in my field anymore. And then Naomi would have no longer had a livelihood in her retirement years. You see, Naomi, though it may be questionable, is taking ownership of Ruth. And Ruth, by caring for Naomi and doing what Naomi asks, is taking ownership of Naomi. And Boaz, by caring for both of them, is taking ownership of them. And beloved, isn't this a picture of the way that Israel and the church is to care for one another today? We are not to look the other way when somebody is in need, are we? Are we the righteous Pharisee and lawyer? Or are we the Samaritan? Who cares for one another in need? We don't look the other way, preferring our own rest, preferring our own retirement, preferring our own relaxation over serving one another. That's not the Christian way. The Christian way is to care for one another. We see this, in a sense, exemplified in Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, but more so exemplified in our Lord Jesus Christ. As we talked about this morning in our Declaration of Pardon. He did not choose his own rest, but was willing to forsake his rest for the salvation of his people. Now, Ruth then puts Naomi's plan into practice. We see that in this midnight proposal. And we see in this one scene, there's three markers of time. We see morning, midnight, and evening. Excuse me, I should say evening, midnight, and morning. And and I'm going to suggest to you that Ruth is going there to propose marriage. Now, if you've ever proposed to someone, you know that it's a nerve-wracking experience. You could be, of course, rejected. You could lose the ring. It could rain, whatever it might be. But I want to suggest to you that Ruth, although agreeing to her mother-in-law's plans, she does make one major change. Instead of saying, staying silent, she reveals to Boaz her heart. That she needs him to redeem her. She, in a sense, at laying down at his feet, says to Boaz, redeem me. Give me the rest and the refuge that I need. I feel my need and I need your redemption. So you see in the evening, Ruth, uh, she puts this plan into effect. She dresses up. She sneaks down to the threshing floor. She watches him eat and drink. She lay, and he lays down. She goes and she uncovers his feet as her mother-in-law commanded her to do. And now she waits. Naomi said to her, Boaz will tell you what to do. 
Yes, but the question is, what will He tell her to do? And in verse 8, it says, at midnight, Boaz gropes for the covers, and behold, a woman lay at His feet. Presumably in the time of the judges where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, a man would have assumed that this is the extending, it's a visitation for sexual favors. But that's not the case with Boaz. He says, who are you? And look at Ruth's character. She immediately disobeys Naomi, who said, don't speak. Do what Boaz tells you to do. But instead, Ruth makes her intentions clear. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a Redeemer. As a woman of character, of honor, she makes her intentions clear. She is not here for a night of passion. She is not here to be paid for sexual favors. Her goal is a covenant commitment to her in marriage. Notice her character. How does she define herself? She says, I am a servant. The Hebrew word here is amah. And it doesn't mean that I'm your possession. It doesn't mean I'm your employee. It actually refers to a higher class of servants. She's saying, even though I'm a Moabite, even though I'm a widow, I am not nothing. And didn't Boaz say that to her in chapter 2? You don't get the water for the men. The men will get the water for you. He raised her up to a high social standing, and here she is claiming that for herself. And she says, spread your wings over your servant. She wants a covenant commitment from him. The only other time this term is found in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel 16, where God describes Israel as a young woman. He says, when I passed by you again, I saw you. Behold, you were at the age of love. And so I spread the corner of my garments over you and I covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. That's chapter 16, verse 8. What is Ruth saying? She's saying, I want to be the one to whom you pledge your faithfulness and you make a covenant, a marriage covenant with me. That's what she's saying. And as you remember, this isn't the first reference to wings or the corner of the garment. Chapter 2, verse 12 references it as well. Boaz blesses Ruth for she sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh. He's appropriating, she is appropriating that term, right? She took Boaz's use of the wings terminology and now she's using it for herself. What is she saying again to Boaz? We contextualize it. She is saying to him, you are God's provision. You are God's protection. Don't just bless me. Be the provision. Be the protection. It's a beautiful commitment. Or it's a beautiful request, I should say. 
And then as we know, sadly, many scholars will go at great lengths to suggest that Ruth is really suggesting and engaging in a sexual relationship here. And again, I want to affirm that Naomi's plan is questionable. But Boaz, and Boaz actually in verse 14 will even say, you know, don't let anybody see you when you leave here. He recognizes. This doesn't look good. But look how he defines Ruth. Instead of cursing her as an immoral Moabite woman, instead, verse 10, he says, you are a virtuous woman. In verse 11, he says that she is a noble woman. In the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes right after Proverbs. And remember how Proverbs ends? Proverbs 31, right? About the virtuous woman. That same terminology in Proverbs 31 to describe the woman at the gates, the woman who cares for her family, the righteous woman, Boaz uses that same term here. You are the Proverbs 31 woman, Ruth. And so he blesses her. He has already been impressed once by Ruth's kindness to Naomi in returning home, but he says this is a greater chesed. This is a greater kindness. And we can infer from this that Ruth is still young. She's still beautiful. And Boaz delights that she chose him. He, she didn't choose the young men. Literally in Hebrew it says the choice men. We get the sense that she's beautiful enough to have chosen anyone. She could have chosen the rich, the young, the handsome, but instead her, va- her values are to her family and to God's provision. And so we get the sense from Boaz's words, from Ruth's words, that this isn't an encounter of some steamy sexual passion, but the sense that you and I are to get from this is that we should be impressed with their purity. And so the meeting goes well. But there's still this element of danger. She's a Moabite widow sleeping in the place of a man, with, a, with a man all night. This could have had bad consequences, deadly consequences. And if she was found in there, the possibility of a marriage would have been ruined before it even got a chance. And so Boaz counsels her to leave early in the morning so that he might preserve her honor and again provide for her physical needs. A word of application here this morning that is so desperately needed. Oftentimes when I meet with young men and young women, I ask this question, what is God's will for your life? Don't we all want to know? And usually people take it the wrong way. They say, well, you know, maybe God wants me to be an engineer or, you know, something like that. And I say, no, that's not what I'm asking. What does God want for you? If you have a Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4 will make it very clear what God's will for you is. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What God's will for us is that we would be sanctified. And look at what the Apostle Paul says right after. This is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Let us be clear this morning. Sexuality is a good thing. Remember that through a healthy, sexual, covenantal relationship, Obed would be born, and through him, David, all the way down to the Messiah. God delights in covenant sexuality. But Satan wants to twist all and distort something that God has made for good and to use it for evil. And look around us in our culture today. Isn't sexuality one of the biggest traps for us? Western society for the last 70 years has kept falling again and again into this sin. Pornography, premarital sex, homosexuality, even the lust of the eyes is Satan's way of taking something that is good and twisting it to become something that is evil. Perverse sexuality has the power to tear our lives apart. It has the power to tear our marriages apart, our families apart. And doesn't our society say this? If it feels good, do it. That's the narrative. If it feels good, do it. But here we're given a godly picture of sexuality, aren't we? Here we have a man and a woman who desire one another, sleeping under the night stars. She says she loves him in a sense. He loves her. They are alone. No one would know. She is beside him and they do not touch one another for righteousness sake. They are committed to God's will for their life more than their own fleshly will more than their own desires for one another. Here the Scriptures point out for us that sexuality is a good thing, but it needs to be used, it needs to be practiced within the confines of a covenant commitment. When I was a kid, the old adage was, it's like a fire. A fire can be a good thing in the fireplace, but it's not good in the living room. It's not good in the kitchen. Let us take heart that God has called us to a sanctified sexuality. I want the ladies here to also notice that the Bible here does not condemn beautifying yourself, does it? We see this also in the Song of Solomon. The bride adorns herself with beauty. But notice who the beauty is for. It's for our husbands. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be beautiful. And let me be clear, young ladies, you are all beautiful. But Christian women are not women who ought to desire beauty for the world. Or for Instagram and Facebook. Oftentimes our, our young women, and even our young men to some extent, will begin to identify their value or their social standing based on if they are beauty, beautiful according to the world's standards. The Bible here 
is very clearly saying beauty can be endorsed. Beauty is a good thing. It can be encouraged, again, within the confines of a covenantal relationship. So we need to be cautious with vanity, don't we? For as you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil are consumed with vanity. And so Boaz, he receives her in the night. And he says to her, I'm going to give you the promise of redemption. In the night, Boaz says, it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Verse 12. Remain tonight, and in the morning I will redeem you. If he will redeem you, excuse me, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Imagine as she's traveling home on the road, the joy in her heart. As questionable and as risky as the night has been, she is going home with the promise of redemption. The promise of rest and refuge. She will be redeemed, whether by Boaz or the nearer Redeemer. It's a promise of union. A promise of rest. A promise of provision, of love, and of security. That's what she came for. This was her goal. And when Boaz asked who she was, she reminded him, you are the Redeemer. I like Boaz in this instance. He owns up to his role. He says, you're right. You're right. I will redeem you. That or another. But on the flip side, maybe she dreaded this. Maybe she thought, oh, I've got to go through this whole threshing floor experience again with another man, and I might not get as favorable results. But no, Boaz says, you don't have to do it again. I will redeem you this morning. Whether by another or myself, you will be redeemed, and if I get to redeem you, I will be re- delighted to save you. And notice the Lord's provision. So Ruth travels home. Naomi asks, how did you fare? In the Hebrew, it might be better said as Ian Duguid notes, she's asking, who are you? Are you Ruth? Or are you Mrs. Boaz Redeemer? And so Ruth reports the events of the night. But the writer takes particular pains to note not Boaz's words. Isn't that interesting? Boaz gives her the promise of union, but instead of relaying that promise, the writer says, she was given six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Don't miss the Lord's provision here. Both Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, or excuse me, through Boaz, Ruth and Naomi are no longer empty. God is the Redeemer who is meeting their needs. When Naomi came back to Bethlehem, how did she define herself? Do not call me Mara. Or excuse me, do not call me Naomi. But call me Mara, for the Lord sent me away full, but I have come back empty. But now, in scene three, she has food to eat, a place to rest, and a promise of provision for her daughter-in-law. She isn't empty anymore. And if God would give her all these things, will He not meet all her needs? 
course he will. Of course he will. This puts a whole new life to Boaz's words in the night. There is a Redeemer nearer than I. He's talking about a man, another man. But we also know that there is a heavenly Redeemer who has been with Ruth and Naomi all the way since they were in Moab. Even though this is a book of love, it's not our modern conception of love. This love story is not charged with physical attraction, with passionate kisses and romance. It's a love story about covenantal commitment. And the covenant commitment that they exemplify is but a small picture of the covenant commitment God has made for us in Christ, isn't it? The real love of this love story is the love of God for straying sheep. Bethlehem would later be the scene of another Bible story where a young woman and a man were with child. But there would be no Goel. There would be no mighty man of valor to receive them. Their baby would be born among cattle with no rest, no protection. This baby would be driven out even in its infancy to Egypt. Having to flee for his life, this baby would be a man of no reputation, despised and rejected by men. But then he would become that Redeemer. He would be the Goel, the mighty man of valor, whose chesed, his love, his true covenant commitment, his commitment to the welfare of others would lead him from Bethlehem to Gethsemane. He would go all the way to the cross that He might redeem His bride. Just like Ruth, His bride is not worthy. The bride is broken. The bride is undesirable in a sense. But because of the Redeemer's love, because of His covenant faithfulness, the bride of Christ is redeemed. Dear congregation, do we not have the promise of salvation this morning in Christ Jesus our Lord? So as the curtains come down at the end of scene three, the play is getting close to its conclusion. The risky plan has been hatched, but because of the covenant faithfulness of Boaz and Ruth, union, salvation, rest has been promised. There will be rest and refuge for this broken Moabite widow. And dear congregation, there is rest and refuge for us in Christ. And this rest is for all those who will prostrate themselves at His feet and cry out with Ruth, I am your servant. Redeem me. And He will, He will redeem all who come to Him in faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give You thanks for Your Word. Thank You for Boaz and Ruth and their love for one another, but especially Your love for us in Jesus Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, for all of those who are here this morning and joining us online, that You might call sinners to Yourself, that they might prostrate themselves at Your feet, and cry out for redemption.
knowing that, Lord, you give it freely and without charge to all who come unto you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.